Good afternoon. This is John Richardson speaking with you from Toronto, Canada. And today I am joined by SEAT co-founders, Karen Alpert in Australia and Laura Snyder, citizen of the world. And this is what I anticipate to be the first of a series of podcasts, discussions by SEAT members, among SEAT members, to talk about the important work, writing, and research that Dr. Laura Snyder has been engaged in for the last at least year, perhaps a year and a half, maybe two years, maybe longer. But it's an amazing body of work, which has appeared and continues to appear in different formats, academic journals, et cetera. But what she has graciously done is broken down her extraordinary research into a series of things that she calls working papers, which have been posted and are available on the SEAT website. But what we thought we would do would be attempt to bring these pod, these papers to life in a more retail sense by devoting a podcast to each one of these working papers and gradually help people understand the problems with what Laura defines as nationality-based taxation, the history, what's wrong with it today, and the road forward in how to get rid of this. Welcome, Karen. How are you today? Doing fine. It's a lovely morning here in Australia. Oh, yeah, that's right. Different time of day. Well, Laura, what's happening? Different day, even. <laughs> Different day, yeah. You see, what that tells us is that this problem of U.S. nationality-based taxation is a worldwide problem. And I think it would be safe to say, and perhaps we start with this, that the truth is the sun never sets on the injustice <laughs> of U.S. nationality-based taxation. Laura, would, would you agree with that? I would definitely agree with that, John. Funny, I knew that. I knew that. All right. Well, first of all, where can you find these papers? Because I know that after listening to this discussion, the first thing that all listeners are going to want to do is, is go and read the original working paper. So the answer is that you will find these things, or at least links, okay? You can access them. I think that's a better word. You can access them on the Seat Now website, which is seatnow.org. That's S-E-A-T-N-O-W.org, which means stop extraterritorial American taxation now. And I would highly recommend that people spend some time at that site. Karen? Yeah, I was just going to say that the working papers are a menu item in the on the left. If you go down on the left, there's a seat working papers is one of the menu items. And then it lists all the working papers. You can work your way through that way. And, and you know, we hope that right now there's 16 and we hope that, you know, that, that Laura continues with this. And hopefully part of the reason for this podcast today is that, that she goes to bed tonight and dreams up a working paper number 17. <laughs> but we'll start here with the first one, and I almost feel as though this, we should call this podcast perhaps Genesis. You know, where does this problem come from? Where, what's the first sort of historical recognition of this as a problem? Lauren, do you wanna, wanna get us started with that? 
Well, I, I think where you're going with that is, is the 1924 uh, USC Supreme Court decision of Cook v. Tate. Is that where you're going, John? Well, I had no idea where to go, but I'll take it, Laura. <laughs> Um, this this decision is cited definitely by people who support the current system. Um, you know, they will say, you know, since 1924, U.S. Supreme Court decision Cook v. Tate, we know that it's constitutional to tax uh, overseas citizens, and and basically people will throw that at you anytime you object to the system or suggest that it might be unconstitutional. Surprisingly. It's not only the people that defend the system, but even people who are not defenders of the system, who will also cite Cook v. Tate as justifying the current system and 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 uh, the grounds on which they will accept that it's constitutional. Um, it seems to have occurred to no one to to question the real value uh, and and continued applicability of Cook v. Tate, given the massive changes that have happened in a century now, both res with respect to taxation, with respect to citizenship, with respect to uh, the evolution of equal protection, everything has changed in a century. And yet people still throw out this Cook v. Tate decision that was decided um, when Plessy v. Ferguson was actually the law of the land. Now, Laura, I think that's a great start. And I, I get the sense that you find the decision objectionable. Um, but, you know, my observation about American law and scholarship is the older the decision, the less relevant it is to contemporary events, the more justifiable it is. Would you agree? Well, when you said, when you said, you know, I, I object to the decision, I would more characterize, characterize my feeling about the decision as, at this stage, it's just not a relevant decision. It is relevant in that people still argue that it's relevant. But if you really look at what's happening, you'll understand that Cook really doesn't explain and doesn't answer what's happening today. Okay. Well, obviously. Well, it's because the world has really moved on since 1924, hasn't it? It's been almost 100 years and uh, things don't stay the same. Citizenship mm -hmm. hasn't stayed the same. Mm -hmm. Uh, the tax code hasn't stayed the same. And so we're talking about a completely different world now than we were in 1924. Well, don't you think that an old decision, a hundred year old decision, I mean, in January, it, it was decided in May of 2000, of 1924, I believe, we're actually coming up to the hundred year anniversary uh, of Justice McKenna's decision. Should we schedule a special podcast on that day? What do you think, to celebrate the <laughs> of a hundred year anniversary of that. Well, I'm not well, sure celebration is the right word. Go ahead, John. <laughs> memorize it. Mark it, yes. <laughs> well, you know, now Karen, uh, you know, you you make a couple of points here. You say, well, citizenship has changed and taxation has changed. And why don't I invite you to pick one of those two things to talk about either citizenship or taxation and, and, and how- okay, so Laura has this lovely table in the in the paper that talks about the difference in uh, taxation um, and the economy between 1924 and she's got 20, 2019. So in 1924, the average uh, household income was just over two thousand dollars, 
And the filing threshold was, you know, to 2,500 for a married couple. So we're talking about people with only above average income that even had to file income taxes in 1924. Um, the exemptions were, were such that um, a married couple making 2,500 paid no tax. So in order to be even caught up in the US tax system in, an, in the 1920s, you had to be maybe not the 1%, but you know, su substantially above average in income. Um, there were 7 million returns that were filed and the average income per return was $3,500. So con contrast that with 2019, where the average annual household income was almost $69,000 and the filing status threshold was um, for married filing joint was $24,000, which is much lower than the average. So you say there maybe three quarters to 80% of um, people would be um, required to file a return. Yeah. yeah, I, I think I think what one of the more telling things in this chart to me is that in 1924, about 30 percent of households filed a return. Mm -hmm. In 2019, 130 percent of households filed a return. So you know you've gone from a system that affects only a third of the households mm -hmm. um, to a system that affects households more than once with the same household more than once. So you've you've gone from a, a system, yeah, that affects a much smaller number of people, uh, incomes at, at incomes at much higher levels than what you see today. So you it's just those numbers tell you uh, you know to you know that, that you've just got a lot more people um well, the that are affected. system has become a lot more pervasive. Yeah. Everybody everybody is affected in uh in 2020 2024 yeah. um whereas you know you had to be relatively well off to even have to worry about a tax return in 1924 but surely and then the complexity can... of the tax code has grown exponentially over that time period as well so that's that's I... on the next page of of the that because you're looking in in um in the yeah. in the working paper number one, uh -huh. so page five has has those numbers we just talked about, right. and page six continues that chart and mm -hmm. and tries to explain in you know how it is more complex in what mm -hmm. ways it is more complex. Do you see that? Yes. Yeah. Controlled foreign corporations, retirement accounts, uh punitive taxation of foreign mutual funds, phantom gains, you know, all these things that have been added to the tax code since 1924 that make it a completely different experience for Americans living abroad. Well, how about yeah. Americans living in the United States? Well, that too. You know, it's a completely different thing. I mean, it, my impression of it is that in 1924, it affected a relatively smaller number of people which it clearly did but also that it was a much simpler experience 
Well, you didn't have you you didn't have to worry about foreign uh, controlled foreign corporations. You didn't have to worry about you know any kind of uh, special reporting or penalizing taxation of retirement uh, accounts or of mutual funds, foreign mutual funds. You didn't have to worry about phantom gains. You didn't have anything like FBAR or FATCA to worry about what's going on with your bank accounts. Uh, you didn't have an expatriation or an exit tax. You didn't have a fee to renounce citizenship. None of that, absolutely none of that existed in 1924. But surely, Laura, the, the community of tax academics would regard all of these things that did not exist in 1924, but do exist today as advances in civilization, right? As good things. Yeah, I don't see it that way, John. No, I see. Okay. All right. So, so what we've got here, all right, is a completely, not only a completely different system of taxation, but frankly, a completely different idea of what taxation even is. Right, a much more intrusive system um, in you know in the current era than back in 1924. Okay. And and I think maybe as a bridge to to the citizenship issue, I think all of these penalizing aspects of the system, or or far more complicated aspects of the system, you have to understand that these these aspects of the system apply to people. Who are U.S. citizens, U.S. nationals living outside the United States, not to anyone else living outside the United States. So if you're a U.S. national, you have to deal with the CFCs. You have to deal with the foreign trusts. You have to deal with the with the problems with the mutual funds, et cetera, et cetera. All of these penalizing aspects. No, John, they are not. They do not promote civilization. They are highly discriminatory, discriminatory and penalizing, and they target specifically U.S. nationals living outside the United States. Okay, so obviously both of you would agree if I were to say that the U.S. absolutely positively, upside down, sideways and diagonally, imposes a more punitive system of taxation on U.S. citizens living outside the United States than inside the United States. Would you agree with that? Yes. Well, it, and it's also a system um, that's more punitive uh, as compared to people who are not U.S. nationals and living outside the United States. Okay. So... Really, U.S. citizens abroad are sort of they're they're at the bottom of the food chain in terms of fair treatment. Would you agree? Obviously. Okay, you know, so clearly we've had massive evolution of of taxation in so many ways, so many ways. But we've also, Karen said, have had major, major changes in citizenship, mm -hmm. and. Uh, Laura, you want to carry the ball with that one? I mean, how's the concept of citizenship changed since 1924? So in 1924, um, it was very easy to, if you lived overseas, it was very easy to lose your U.S. citizenship, whether you wanted to lose it or not. Um, and so table two of, of the first working paper lists has a list of all the ways that people could have did lose their U.S. nationality automatically if they lived overseas in 1924. So if you acquired citizenship of another country, if you naturalized another country, that, that meant automatic loss of U.S. citizenship. 
Um, if you were a naturalized U.S. citizen who lived outside the United States um, for a minimum number of years, if you lived in the country where you came from for two years, or if you lived in another country for five years, automatically you lost U.S. citizenship. If you are a woman who married a non-U.S. citizen and lived uh, overseas, either for two years in the country where your husband is from or five years in another country, you lost U.S. citizenship. And if you were a child, when you turned 18, you had to go into a U.S. consulate and declare your intention to reside in the United States and, and, and to retain U.S. citizenship and take an oath of allegiance. And if you didn't take those active steps, then you also were considered to have lost U.S. citizenship. So basically, if you were living overseas in 1924, if unless you were. So if you were a woman, you better not marry a non-U.S. citizen. Um, otherwise, you needed to be a natural born citizen who did not naturalize in another country. Um, and what was what was the other one? I can't remember what it was. But um, basically, the gist is today, the only way you can lose U.S. citizenship when you live overseas is by um you know, formally renouncing U.S. citizenship, going into a consulate and making the declaration and paying a very extensive, a big fee, $2,350, which I know they've announced that it's going to be reduced, but I haven't seen a date for when that's going to happen um, and potentially pay an exit tax. Whereas in, in 1924, there's just a multitude of reasons that things that could get you, you could lose your citizenship. And actually, after 1924, in the 40s and the 50s, there were two um, immigration and naturalization acts where they even expanded how you could lose your citizenship. If you deserted the army, if you voted in a foreign election, those different things would also get you to lose your citizenship. So, so what you have is, on the one hand, from 1924 to today, you have a tax system that has absolutely exploded in terms of um, who it affects and how it affects them in, in terms of, of, of the people that are, are affected by the system and the, and the types of laws that affect them and the complexity of the laws. And on the other hand, you have citizenship, which has gone from, you know, a relatively small number of U.S. citizens living overseas on a long term basis, since so many of them just lost their citizenship to now basically anyone with U.S. citizenship who lives overseas is going to retain their citizenship unless they take big steps to renounce it. So you've got this exploding tax system and also, um, you know, I want to say exploding citizenship, but certainly an increased number of citizens living overseas. Okay. So, so more people affected. Okay, sure. So would you say that a hundred years ago, the United States didn't have a tax system other than being subject to it that affected Americans abroad all that much, but they punished them by basically revoking their citizenship. Today, today it's the opposite. Say, oh yeah, sure, you can keep your citizenship and we're going to punish you through the tax system, right? So, so yeah. either, way, either way, Laura, it seems to me that it would be U.S. government policy to punish its citizens abroad. Would that make sense? They're just doing it. Yes, and using citizenship to do that, yeah. using it nationality, in different ways. Yeah. Like, yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, based on nationality, American nationality. It's, it's very, yeah. very interesting, right? They used to do it. They used to punish them through the nationality route. 
Today, they punish them through the tax route. How come they can't punish them through the nationality route anymore? Laura? Well, they shouldn't be. They are, but they shouldn't be. Well, this the the. Well, what's that case? What's that case that caused all the problems? With nationality? Yeah. Tax well, there's multiple. The forium. Sorry. Forium. Yeah, the forium case. Oh. Yeah. Which, which a, meant that Congress couldn't couldn't write all those rules that stripped people of their citizenship. There was so there was a there was Schneider, there was a Forium, and there was um the one with the deserter. What was I can't remember the name Tarasas. of the case. There was Terrasas. That's later though, I think. Yeah. That's, um that's nineteen eighty. Right. So so we've got the two really big ones, right? The Schneider case was decided, if I'm not mistaken, on the basis that was an equal protection argument, okay? That 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 essentially uh, said, no, no, no. Uh, you know, the government, for the government to strip that woman of her citizenship because she moved back to her country of origin or whatever, uh, violates equal protection. So th that was that was interesting, okay, in the sense of the, of the tax fallout after that. But really, I think it was the 1967 decision in a forum, wasn't it? Okay, that essentially says, bottom line, that hey, what Congress has been doing since the beginning of Congress has been unlawfully stealing people's citizenship, right? Saying no, citizenship, at least 14th Amendment citizenship, anybody born or naturalized in the United States has a constitutional status that prevents the government from just taking it, right? Yes. Yes. Well, there was I'm trying to find the other the other one with the guy who deserted. What was the name of that? Vance versus Teresa's. Sorry? I think it's Vance versus Teresa's. That sounds oh wait. Um all we need is a foreign Trophy Dulles. Trophy Dulles. That one. Um well, so so a forum, right, was what was the seminal case in elevating uh, citizenship to constitutional status. The Schneider case doesn't do that because the Schneider case doesn't say that you have a constitutional right to citizenship. What it says is that if the government is going to strip people of citizenship, they, they can't do it in a way that violates other parts of the Constitution. I think that's what that case says. But I mean, a forum is huge, right? Citizenship belongs to the individual. Congress cannot do things which result in the forcible destruction of citizenship. Isn't that what that case says? Yes, there was. Okay, yes. The forum was, was the big case that after that, that was when the State Department um, finally accepted that they were finally just, you know, decided they're not going to take this position anymore. That when Americans living overseas asked to renew their passports, they were going to renew their passports or at least not claim that they weren't citizens anymore. If that was the case that kind of tipped the balance. There were some, there were a couple of cases before that. And the one that sucks in my mind is the 1958 decision of Trope v. Dulles, which was a soldier was convicted for desertion. And, um, during World War II, he was in, I think, Morocco or something. And um, when he applied for a passport later, he was told, no, you desert, you you lost your citizenship. And this is when um, Earl Warren said he was echoing um, Hannah Arendt. And he said, uh, 
you know, when you deprive someone of, of well, in this case, denationalization, de um, that this is a total destruction of the individual status in organized society, that, you know, depriving someone of citizenship, a form of punishment more primitive than torture, where it destroys the individual, their political existence, that was centuries in development. Um, and, you know, he talks about how citizenship is, oh, the expatriates lost the right to have rights. And so you have to see, ultimately, you, there is, you know, a series of decisions that that Chief Justice Earl Warren um, was responsible for in the late 50s and into the 60s. But yeah, I think Afroim was, was the one that kind of crowned all of that and and where I think the State Department well, finally said, right, I give up, you win. <laughs> well, Afroim is the case that opens the floodgates, basically, right? Yeah. The yeah, that was it was after that case where you saw the number and, and basically that was when the number of people losing U.S. citizenship by default basically plummeted to, you know, today, basically zero. Actually, it wasn't it wasn't until Vance versus Teresis in 1980 that the as a matter of sort of just historical record here. The State Department actually did continue stripping people of their citizenship after forum, presumably reading it as applying only to voting in a foreign election or something like that. But it was in 1980 that the Supreme Court essentially read, well, Congress and the, the administration, the Riot Act, and affirmed the forum decision. Um, and it was what was interesting was if you look at the historical development of this, it was not even then until 1986 that the Immigration and Nationality Act was amended in order to include the language expatriation with act with the intent to relinquish U.S. citizenship. They didn't even, you know, bother to change the law. And then I think it wasn't until 1991 that the State Department actually uh, adopted an administrative policy that. Uh, you know, these expatriating acts uh, were not without evidence of intent to relinquish uh, reasons to try to strip people of their citizenship. But what we've got here, okay, leaving aside the history, right? What we have that's interesting is in 1924, a relatively, uh, compared to today, benign and simple tax system that probably would not have interfered in the lives of Americans abroad a great, great deal didn't have to because the nationality laws that they were using to strip people of citizenship did that for them, right? I mean, that was how they expressed their hostility towards Americans abroad, right? Okay. Then we go a hundred years later, and of course, you know, we have forum along the way that has made it very, very difficult to lose U.S. citizenship unless you try to renounce and a much more complex tax system so now Americans abroad are punished through the tax system, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's quite interesting. I mean, you know, this is one of the points that I think you made, uh, that you made, Laura, uh, in, in your work, which um, I think you're right, is that I think that the U.S. government has a lot of hostility towards Americans abroad actually. You know, if, if you look at all this legislation, I mean, so many of these new pieces of legislation have come in as revenue offset provisions, you know, et cetera. So I don't know. What are your thoughts on that, Karen? No, oh, yeah, I agree. Um, it's, uh, it's not always feasible to 
live a productive financial life outside of the U.S. as a U.S. citizen. Depends entirely on what country you're in, but for many, I mean, this is why we see the renunciation numbers um, as high as they are. Because people are acknowledging that they can't be both a U.S. citizen and a contributing member of the economy where they're living. Well, it can't be a tax-compliant U.S. citizen. Exactly, right? yes. That's the problem. And what I've seen over the years is that, you know, for many years, as you know, you know, there wasn't a huge awareness of, of uh, you know, the requirement that U.S. citizens abroad file tax returns. Uh, but what I've seen is that filing is often the first step to renunciation. Exactly. You know, I mm -hmm. mean, because they realize that, oh, my God, you know, they just can't manage it sort of thing. Well, you know, I sort of see uh, the Cook versus Tate decision as being sort of genesis, right? If we were writing a great book on this, mm -hmm. uh, you know, which, which really, which really is the beginning. And I guess one thing I that I think is interesting—I don't know how relevant, but but I've always found interesting about the Cook versus Tate decision. Uh, it was written by uh, Justice Joseph McKenna who had actually had a serious stroke uh, before, uh, you know, before the case was heard in writing the decision and was basically, you know, basically had to sort of, you know, step down after, you know, I don't know if that would have had any impact on it or not, but it is interesting that um, the decision Cook versus Tate was clearly not written when Justice McKenna was sort of at the top of his game, right? Yeah. yeah. So, so what do you think, Laura? Should uh, I mean? Let me ask you this question. I mean, obviously, all of us, anybody in seat, probably anybody in the world who actually understands the decision, would be hostile to the decision. But um, do you think that nationality-based taxation, in and of itself, is unconstitutional, or do you think it depends on what the nature of the taxation is? The Supreme Court has been very clear. This has occurred after the Cook decision in the years, in the century since the Cook decision. Again, I repeat, Cook was decided when Plessy v. Ferguson was the law of the land, when it was actually considered constitutional to discriminate based on race. Um, of course, that, you know, we, we've seen, you know, multiple Supreme Court decisions over in the decades since saying you not only can't discriminate on race, but also you cannot discriminate based on nationality. And this is these are considered, you know, those are, are the violations of equal protection that are subject to strict scrutiny, as in they are considered by definition to violate the 14th Amendment, unless you can show a compelling governmental interest and that the the policies are narrowly tailored to um, to comply with that compelling governmental interest. Otherwise, it necessarily is unconstitutional. Um, if you, you know, identify people based on their nationality and you treat them differently from people of other nationalities, this is by definition, a violation of the 14th Amendment Equal Protection Clause. 
Oh, Laura, you know, you put that, uh, and, and of course, you know, I, I, I've read the things you've written about that. So I'm, I'm used to the, you know, the cluster of words that you're using and that sort <laughs> of thing. Um, no, 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 no. I, I, think, I, think it's, I think it's a very descriptive and very good cluster of words. Um, but, you know, as you were saying that, it reminded me of the Moore decision. Now, uh, we in SEED, okay, SEED has uh, submitted an amicus brief in the Moore uh, case, as, as you may know. Uh, and one of the uh, the points that is in uh, the seed amicus brief uh, is is I think really aimed at that that you know the the transition tax mandatory repatriation tax okay is not exactly narrowly tailored right I mean they could have they could have left individuals out of it couldn't they they could have left all individuals out of it. They could have left individuals living outside the United States out of it. Yes, they definitely could have. And they could have done it not only when they adopted the law, the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, but at the moment of regulation, you know, multiple people appealed to the Treasury Department uh, to develop regulations that would exclude individuals and the, well, the Treasury or Department. Or small denied. businesses. They could have. They could have. Right. That's right. They could have put a dollar limit on the value of the, of the business that's as a right. whole. That's and right. There were arguments for a de minimis, a de minimis exemption. Yeah, that's right. So they could have done both of those things, John. Right. So, I mean, certainly, even if one could take the position that citizenship taxation per se is not unconstitutional, surely it can be applied in a way that it is because it's not narrowly tailored and discriminatory, right? Well, if it's not narrowly tailored, um, well, if it's discriminatory, it's unconstitutional, unless this is this is the way the Supreme Court sets up what is strict scrutiny. That's why I use those terms, because that's the terminology used by the court and used by anyone, academics who discuss in this area. So I was trying to use the, you know that terminology. But basically, um, discrimination based on race or nationality, and these are intricate, intricately linked race and nationality, it's very difficult to separate the two. So you, you have to understand that nationality is as bad an equal protection violation as discrimination based on race, uh, because they're, this, they're for all intents and purposes the same thing. Um, and so what, what the Supreme Court has interpreted the 14th Amendment to say is, you cannot, you cannot discriminate based on race or nationality unless the government has the burden of showing a compelling governmental interest and that the policy is narrowly tailored to serve that interest. So, you know, you have to, if you wanted to speak about this in terms of the, the mandatory repatriation tax. Well, if you look at what the interest that's been expressed in terms of why that tax is needed, well, that ha it has nothing to do with individuals, certainly has nothing to do with individuals living overseas. You know, they talk about how uh, multinationals have accumulated income outside the United States that should be repatriated to the United to to the United States. Well, nobody said individuals, Americans operating small businesses outside the United States were a problem in this context. Whatever they're accumulating in their small businesses was never intended to be repatriated to the United States. No one said the individuals were the bad guys in this context. No one said the law was ever even intended to target them. So, you know, by by the terms of the government itself and how they've described this tax, individuals had nothing to do with it and, and it's not narrowly tailored. It encompassed people 
that didn't need to be encompassed. And and also small businesses. You can make the same argument for small businesses. Mm-hmm. Well, very interesting points. Very interesting points. Maybe we'll close out. I'll ask Karen a question. You know, we listened to Laura talking about, you know, this discrimination based on nationality, small. I mean, do you, is it possible for the U.S. to government run a tax system effectively that doesn't discriminate against somebody? Look, I, I think it's possible. You got to keep the tax system within your own borders. Now, that is a thought. And I think maybe we will end today on that note. Well, yeah. I, I'm sorry, you got to follow up to what you just said. There will always be laws that will discriminate in some way. The question is, how do they discriminate? And the issue here is we're discriminating on basis of race or nationality. That's something you are not allowed to do. Laura, I've got a question for you. Do you think it's time to stop extraterritorial American taxation now? Yes. It definitely is time. <laughs> On that note, I'd recommend that everybody visit our website at seatnow.org. Well, this has been great. And this is only the first of our ongoing series of podcasts to discuss seat working papers authored by Dr. Laura Snyder. Well, thank you very much. Thank, thank you, you very- John. Thanks, John. Okay. <laughs>